This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about I'm sure most of us in this room have probably gambled, or maybe you went to casino night at your prom, or in the least part, maybe you've seen a movie about gambling. So if, if that's true, then chances are you probably have heard the phrase, all in. You guys familiar with this phrase, all in? I think we, we're familiar with that, right? We know what that means. We, we can track with that. If I said, we're going all in, you know what that means. It means we're going all in. It means we're very, very confident. We're very, very confident. We don't know. We don't know for sure, but we're pretty confident in whatever it is, our hand or, or say, the number that you're, that you're betting on. And so you're going to go all in. You're with me, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I have grown up in church, and I've heard probably countless sermons on what it is to go all in. Or maybe even an entire sermon series on, you guys heard sermons on that? Go all in, Right? So chances are that if I put like a graphic on the screen right now, say it was a picture of a guy pushing his chips across the screen, you would see that, right? Looks pretty nice, right? That's a pretty cool graphic for a sermon series, don't you think? Yeah. And let's say I got really fancy and I put like some bold block type right there that said, all in. And if I really wanted to like hit the nail out of the park, I'd put a Bible verse on there too, you know, just so that you'll know we got a Bible verse and, and, and if you're like me, and you saw that on the TV, you're, you, you could probably imagine where that sermon's going, right? You, you know where this is going, don't you? Because it always goes the same place. It, it always sounds something like this. You need to go all in for Jesus. You need to push all your chips in there for Jesus Christ, man. You got, don't hold any of them chips back for yourself. Just give it all to Jesus. If your heart were a theater with seats in it, Jesus needs to be sitting in all them seats, don't you let anything else or anyone else sit in one of them seats. It's got to be all Jesus up in there. And so you got to go all in for Jesus. Am I right? Now, that might be a good sermon, actually. Maybe you need to hear a sermon like that. Maybe you've got some chips that you're holding back that you need to surrender to God. Maybe you need to surrender all to Jesus. But can I just say, as I've said before in this series, that that is, again, and I'll say that again, Again, another one of these subtle checklist, to-do list, try harder, do better, be gooder kind of a sermon. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Because that pastor says, go all in for Jesus, and then you might get motivated for a few minutes and say, amen, I need to go in. There are some things I'm holding back. There are some chips that I'm keeping in my hand and not giving to Jesus. So I'm going to go all in, and then you try, and then you fail, and then you feel really small. Is that true? So tonight, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3. And Paul's going to preach a similar kind of a sermon, really. He's going to say the same thing. He's going to say, go all in. But he's going to do it just a little different. Just a little, he's got just a little subtle difference. And that subtle difference makes all the difference in the world. See, we're so used to hearing, go all in for Jesus. But Paul's going to say it like this. Listen to the subtlety. 
Go all in on Jesus. Did you hear that? See, the first one, go all in for Jesus, is man-centered, is do-centered. Do this. But the second one, go all in, bet all your chips on Jesus, is gospel-centered, Christ-centered, done-centered. Does that make sense? Jesus has done it. So today we're going to talk about pushing our chips all in and betting it on Jesus. We're betting on Jesus. In fact, Paul's going to say in this text that there's really only two ways that you can live. All people have these two options. There's two ways for all of us to live. Great, small, big, tiny, tall, short, fat, skinny, rich, poor, celebrity, not a celebrity. It doesn't matter who you are. There's only two ways for everyone on this planet to live. And those ways are either you're going to bet it all on yourself or you're going to bet it all on someone else, particularly Jesus. You're either going to bet it all on yourself and you're going to say, I can do it. I can, I, can, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can struggle. I can strive. I can become a better person. Or you're going to push it all on Jesus and say, he done did it for me. You can, you can say, I, I can, like we talked about justification last week, you can say, I can justify myself, I can work like a dog to get myself made right before God's eyes, or you can say, I'm just going to cash all my chips on Jesus and hope. I'm going to gamble it all on him and say, I think he, he's doing a better job than I ever could, amen? So that's what Paul's going to say. And because Paul thinks there's only two ways to live, he's also going to say that you've got to go all in on either of those ways. You can't go 50-50. You can't put 50% of your chips on Jesus and 50% of your chips on yourself, which is what we want to do, isn't it? Jesus can help you out, give you a bump draft, you know? You can do it, Jesus can help, kind of a philosophy. You can't do that. Some of us might put 70, 30, <laughs> maybe 60, 40. It doesn't matter. You have to go all in. That's what Paul's going to show us. You either got to go all in on Jesus or all in on Self. Here's how Paul's going to talk about it. He's going to say it's you versus Jesus, or it's works versus faith, or it's even cursed versus blessing. Which one do you think you want to go all in on? I don't know about you, but I want to push all my chips over to Jesus, faith, and blessing. And I'm not going to hold anything back for curse, works, or me. Amen. Amen. All right, so here's, let's just dive in. Last week, we ended on chapter 2, and um, I didn't read that last verse, verse 21. And I didn't do that on purpose because I thought it would be a better time today to read that verse. It would fit better with today's conversation. But most importantly, I wanted to end last week with the verse that preceded this verse that talked about the love of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, and it was his love that he died for me. He loves me. And I felt it was best that we ended on the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us. The law never compels us. The law decompels us. <laughs> the law doesn't motivate us. The law demotivates us. But the gospel and the cross of Jesus is very motivational, wouldn't you say? And so we ended last week on it is the love of Christ that motivates us. And Paul was basically saying the law is dead. It is dead to me. You're dead to me. Paul said, and he nails the coffin of the law with this one last nail, and that's this verse here. I'm going to read it for you. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
he's just nailing that last nail in the coffin. Did, did, did you hear how the language that he's using, how hard that is? I do not cancel the grace of God. Because if you could do anything through the works of the law, then Jesus died for nothing. If I could do, if you could do anything, let's say you could just be just good enough, then you cancel, the, you cancel grace and you, you nullify the gospel and Jesus died for nothing. This is hard. That's hard talk. There's nothing you can do. And if there's something you can do, then you've just destroyed the cross and Jesus died for nothing. Jesus could have just came. If you can do it, right, then Jesus could have came and he could have piped the Home Depot motto and say, you can do it, Jesus can help. Jesus could have just come and, and wrote a book, you know, seven steps on how to have your best life now, you know. You can try hard and do good, and this is how you do it. That's what Jesus could have done, but he died on a wicked cross. And Paul says, I will never nullify that by thinking in my mind that I could actually do anything. Have you ever heard that verse in the Bible that says, God helps those who help themselves? Have you heard that verse? Did you know that it's not in the Bible? Nowhere. In fact, everyone thinks it's in the Bible, and George Barna just did some research not too long ago, and he found out that 82% of Americans, 82% of Americans believe that's in the Bible. I've heard some people say, you know, it's like the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves, and that's not true. Not true at all. In fact, the opposite is true. The Bible doesn't say anything that even hints towards that. The Bible says things like, you're a filthy person, and you can never measure up, and we all fall short of God's glory. The Bible says even your good works are filthy to God. They're filthy rags even. Um, God chose you while you were still sinners. He became sin for you. And the Bible actually, I could go on, right? The Bible says the opposite. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And so you see, you and I, we have to go all in. We have to cash all of our chips on Jesus. And none of our, we can't put any of them on ourselves Because if we do that, then we are nullifying the cross and Jesus died for nothing. Does that make sense? Not that Jesus, God helps us if we put a little bit on our side. We've got to push it all on his side. So let's, look at, let's just jump into verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. <laughs> let's just stop there for a second and think about this. Paul has become so irate. You know, he was cursing in chapter 2, and now he calls them fools. You're all fools, Paul says. That's, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? You're a fool. Didn't Jesus say something about not calling people fools? Do you remember that? I remember that from being a kid. When I was a kid, I got in trouble in Sunday school for saying fool. My Sunday school teacher read this verse from Jesus. In chapter 5, Matthew 5, I've never forgotten it. It says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, fires of hell. That's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean... Whoever says you fool is going to hell. That's what Jesus said. I guess you could put this as one of the hard sayings of Jesus, wouldn't you? Is Paul going to hell now that he said fool? He called the Galatians a fool. It's in, we've got proof. It's in the Bible. Oh, fools. Why does Paul do that? Well, I need you to know that Paul does it intentionally. Paul always chooses his words very carefully, and he uses these words for a specific purpose. Because, again, he's saying you Foolish Galatians, you've let these people sneak into your church and start to teach you that you have to go some on Jesus and then some on yourself. It was great that Jesus died for your sins, but you must become a Jew. 
You must follow the Jewish laws. You must eat the Jewish diet. You must get circumcised. And Paul's saying, you're a fool. Why does he say fool? Pretty fascinating, actually. If you do um, a word search on the word fool in your Bible, like if you have a computer Bible, you just type in the word fool, do a search. Overwhelmingly, you'll get hits in Proverbs, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes. There's a few in the New Testament, like this one. But overwhelmingly, they're all in those proverbial, poetical verses. And, and, and they always talk pretty about the same thing. Let me just show you one of them. Let me show you one of the things that it says. Uh, Psalms chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So think about what Paul's saying here. If you think that you can put some of your chips on Jesus, but then some of your chips on yourself. Jesus died. He saved you. You're, you know, thank you for that. But now I'm going to play this game, and I'm going to be good enough, and I'm going to try hard, and I'm going to do better. Then you're a fool. Therefore, you're an atheist because you don't believe the gospel. You've nullified the gospel, and Jesus died for no purpose for you. Does that make sense? You're an atheist if you don't. If you do this, now you don't have to not believe in God to be an atheist. Did you know that? You could actually be what um, scholars call a functional atheist. A functional atheist might be someone who says they believe in God. Maybe they even believe in Jesus, but they live their life and they act or function like someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe the gospel. So these are people who say, I believe God, and yet they're over here trying hard. They're playing that game. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm going to try harder, do better, be gooder. And Paul is saying, then you don't understand the gospel. You may be a Christian, but you're a fool. You're a functional atheist. Listen to another verse in Proverbs 28. It says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but who walks wisely will be delivered. If you trust in yourself, if you trust in your own heart, you're a fool. You've got to cash it all in. You've got to go all in on Jesus. You've got to bet it all on Jesus. You can add nothing to this. Nothing. Oh, foolish Galatians. The next thing he says is this. Who has bewitched you? It is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Again, this is harsh talk. He says, you're a fool who's bewitched you. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? What does that mean? Who's, who's bewitched you? Paul's is simply saying, you're under some sort of spell. That's got to be it. Someone has cast you in a spell. You're in some hypnotic state because there's no possible way. There's really, it's, it's almost, Paul's saying, in my mind, it is impossible that if Jesus was portrayed in front of you, crucified on a cross, you saw his body hanging on a tree, blood pouring down on Calvary, his body broken for you. When Jesus said, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me, this is my body broken, this is my blood spilt for you. Christ has been preached to you, proclaimed to you as one crucified. And if you've got that image burned in your mind, then there's no possible way that you could ever look at the cross of Christ and say, yeah, I think I could add something to that. I think I got something to go along with that. I got an hors d'oeuvre, you know, to go with that. Paul's saying, unless some witch has come into town and bewitched you, put you in a spell, made you hypnotized, because I just don't understand how you guys could even think that way. What is wrong with you? Who has bewitched you? 
I think we need to get mad like Paul's mad. Don't you, don't you see how mad he is? You're a fool and someone has put you in a spell. You've got to go all in for Jesus. The moment you think you can have anything to add to Jesus, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and it's Jesus plus anything is nothing. You, you nullify the cross if you add anything to the gospel. Paul's angry. I think it's time for us to get angry too. Don't you agree? It's time for us to fight for the free grace offer of Jesus Christ, that it's good news. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to do better, and you don't have to be gooder. In fact, you can't. God does not help those who help themselves. God only helps those who cannot help themselves. It's time for someone to stand up and say, no more to-do list preaching. No more self-improvement sermons, okay? Listen to this scholar, Paul Tripp. He says this, When I hear a sermon that is essentially law-driven, that is, it's asking the law to do what only the grace of Jesus Christ can accomplish, I'm immediately concerned about the preacher. I immediately wonder about his view of himself. Because if he had any self-consciousness about his own weakness and sin, he would find little hope and comfort for himself and his hearers in that kind of sermon. Do you understand that? I feel sorry, because I get frustrated when I hear preachers talk about, you need to try harder, you need to do better, you need to be gooder, because that guy probably thinks that he has done better and been gooder. And he doesn't recognize that it is not anything that you can do over here. It's all Jesus. It's law-driven sermon, do-driven sermon, works-driven sermon, as opposed to a gospel, grace, Christ-centered sermon. Here's one of my favorite quotes of all time, actually. Robert Kappen. Listen to this. Some of you read it on Facebook already. I think good preachers should be like bad kids. They ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on their dozing congregations and then steal their bottles of religion pills and flush them all down the drain. The church, by and large, has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to its relationship with God. What preachers need to do is force it to go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross or the gospel, and then be brave enough to stick around while the congregation goes through the inevitable withdrawal symptoms. (laughs) That's awesome. We need to just flush their religion pills down the drain and feed them nothing but gospel and grace and Jesus. And then a good preacher, which I don't know if I could do this actually, a good preacher sticks around until they get through their withdrawal symptoms. Because I've preached the gospel before, and as I've said before, the gospel, when preached clearly, is always attacked within the church, never outside the church. There's no one outside the church that will say to you, well, you're preaching easy believism. You're preaching, it's just, you know, it's cheap grace. No non-Christian will say that. Only Christians will say that. Luther says, it ain't cheap, and it sure as the heck ain't easy. That's why we keep thinking we got to keep some over here on ourselves because it's too hard for us to actually let go and cash it all in and bet it all in on Jesus. Amen? i got a question for you. Here's a discussion question. How are you living like a functional atheist? You believe in Jesus, but at the same time, you're kind of betting on yourself. You're kind of holding on to some of your own chips. Maybe you put 50-50 or 60-40. How are you living like a functional atheist? And then what must you do to stop this isn't try harder, do better, be gooder kind of a question. This is don't be an atheist. Don't be a fool. <laughs> don't let anyone bewitch you. So are you living like an atheist, functional atheist? And what do you do? I think for me, I was thinking through this as well. How do I live like a functional atheist? And what must I do to stop? And 
I would answer that question by saying, when I sin or when I fail, I always immediately, I think we all do, want to fix that. Especially if you're a man. You know, you can fix this. I can fix this. And so you say, well, I'm going to fix this. I'm not going to do that again. But then I always do. <laughs> always. Like a dog that returns to his vomit. You know I mean? I'm always doing it. So then, so then I tell myself, if I was going to not be a functional atheist, I would tell myself, instead of trying hard to fix that, instead of trying hard to do better with that, instead, cash it all on Jesus. Say, Jesus died on the cross for that. And then once you see Jesus on the cross, blood stained, body broken, immediately you become humbled, humiliated, haunted by the fact that that's my sin that Jesus is dying for. And now I have a different motivation. My motivation is not, oh, I want to stop doing that because it's bad and I shouldn't do it anymore. My motivation is like, I'm sorry, Lord, that I hurt you in this way. Please forgive me. But now next time that comes up, I might less likely want to do it because I'm thinking of Christ thinking that he paid for this, and he paid for it again, and again, and again, and again. So that changes things a little bit. It's Christ-centered instead of Mike-centered. Does that make sense? I personally think it, it's all the difference in the world. It can actually something that can succeed in your life instead of always trying and always failing. And so the gist of it still is the same. We have to push all of our chips, all the red ones, the green ones, the blue ones, all on Jesus and stop trying to muster up their own strength to do it yourself because in my experience, maybe I'm the only one, but in my experience, I never can. It's Christ who can. So let's keep moving on. Um, Paul's going to make continue with the same argument, and he's going to get um, interesting here. He says, let me ask you only this. I love it. You're a fool. Someone's bewitched you. Let me, let me, let me ask you a question. That's what Paul's saying. Let me just ask you, look, one question, okay? I'm going to ask you one question, and this question is going to be it for you. It's going to, this, this, this question is going to nail it in for you, okay? What? I'm just going to ask you one question. Listen to this question. Here it is, here it is. You ready to listen? You ready to listen? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Huh. Did you, here's the question, how did you get saved? How did you get saved? Did you get saved by trying real hard to honor your father and your mother and to not lie and to not commit adultery and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm saved? Or did you get saved like this? One day you were sitting there, you heard the gospel preached to you, and then immediately you received the Holy Spirit and got saved. Was it the latter or was it the former? I mean, was it the former or the latter? <laughs> Let's get those confused. And the answer is always what? The latter. Everyone. Nobody said, well, I was trying real hard, and then all of a sudden, I think just one day I kind of made it. <laughs> I sort of arrived as justified. No, it's always the other way around. I was sitting there, and God knocked me off my donkey, and then he showed me his glory, and then I became saved. And Paul says like this, when did you receive the Spirit? I was, you know, you came into your home, preached the gospel, Spirit came on you, you started speaking in tongues, you started whatever, right? That's what happens in the New Testament. He asks the same question in regards to miracles. A few verses later, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Interesting. When a miracle happens in your life, is it because you started doing better at your quiet time? <laughs> or, or, or if you've got the cancer and you start praying, isn't it true you start having your quiet time religiously, right? Because you think it's going to work if I try harder and do better, then he's going to have to listen to me and give me a miracle, how about power? How about power from the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit bring power in your life because you're trying harder and you're doing better and you're being gooder? Or is it from faith? And what's the answer? Faith. faith. Oh, it's always. It's faith. 
It's got to be one or the other. You don't get saved. You don't get miracles. You don't get the Holy Spirit by the law. You get saved. You get miracles. You get the Holy Spirit simply by faith. And if that's true, then listen to this next question. He's going to ask another question. I know. He said he was only going to ask one question, didn't he? <laughs> I just got one question for you. But, and then he rolls into a second question. I guess Paul can get away with that. Here's the second question. Are you so foolish? So he's bringing back this whole functional atheism again. We're not even, we're barely out of that verse. He wants to remind us that he called us fools. He called the Galatians fools. Are you so foolish? Listen to this. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is a really good verse. I mean, this is one of those verses that you should memorize. I want you to go home. I want you to try harder. I want you to do better. I want you to be gooder at memorizing this verse, okay? <laughs> Did you, do you hear what Paul's saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying you get nothing from works. It all comes from faith, even sanctification. Did you hear that? Last week, we talked about justification versus sanctification. And in chapter 2, Paul is essentially saying that justification means to be made right. It's how you're saved. It's how you're made right in God's eyes, made fit for heaven. How are we justified? We are justified by the cross. Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, and, that, and having faith in that is what justifies you. And then we started talking about sanctification. Sanctification is a process, and it means to be made holy. It's a long process. For some of us, it's longer than others. <laughs> it's a long process. Sanctus means holy, and so sanctification means being made holy. And so because we're all do-it-yourselfers, we really are, and because we're all really excited about the chips, what can I offer? Where's, what, what chips can I put in? We immediately say, and I bet you some of you did this last week, because we're doing it ourselves, we start to think, oh, okay, Whew. there's my part. That, that, oh, now I get it. I don't try harder to be gooder in order to be saved or justified. I try harder and be gooder in order to be gooder. Okay, now I'm comfortable. Did you, did you catch that? But do you notice that Paul just took that from us too? Every single week he's taken something from us and giving us freedom. We're like, don't take that from us. No, 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 I'm taking it from you now. Do you see what freedom you have? It's not you that sanctifies yourself. It's Jesus that sanctifies you. It's not you who makes yourself more holy. It's Jesus that makes you holy. Because you see, what the Judaizers, what the Pharisees, what the legalists, what the fundamentalists are always doing is they say, Jesus died on your cross and he justified you. Now you have to be good. You have to, you have to start to, you have to prove that Jesus justified you. And Paul says, are you so foolish to actually think that the Spirit saved you, but now you have to be perfected, a.k.a. completed, a.k.a. sanctified, made perfect, through the flesh? He's saying, don't be a fool. Don't get foolish on me. Don't go, don't go running into this category, because as soon as you get into this me category, you've already proven that you don't understand the gospel, and you're a functional atheist. You have to go all in on Jesus. Pretty revolutionary, isn't it? Paul is awesome. He's just a masterful teacher, isn't he? Listen to this quote. Timothy Keller, you don't believe me, you can believe Timothy. Timothy says, we are not only saved by the gospel, but we are also now grow by the gospel. 
Paul is saying that we don't begin by faith and then proceed and grow through our works. We are not only justified by faith in Christ, we are also sanctified by faith in Christ. We never leave the gospel behind. The gospel is not for evangelistical purposes. Go preach the gospel, get people saved, get them in the church, and then teach them theology and hermeneutics and obedience. No, 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 no. You preach the gospel every week because I need to hear it every week, don't you? I need to remember he does love me. I need to remember he did die for me. Martin Luther says this, when we have become righteous, then first are we now, or now then, we are able and willing to do good. So essentially, once we've become made right or justified or saved, we get the Holy Spirit, right? Did you receive the Spirit by work or by faith? Faith. Once you get the Spirit inside of you, listen to what Luther says. The tree makes the apple. The apple does not make the tree. What that means is you're a tree. If you've got the Holy Spirit living inside you, you're a fruit-bearing tree. And then you bear fruit. And it's an apple. Can an apple make a tree? No. The apple, say the apple is honoring your father and your mother. That's a fruit of having the Holy Spirit within you. There are people in this world who can honor that father and that mother, right? Somewhat. But yet, that doesn't make them justified. So the Spirit comes inside of you, and then you will have fruit. But who does it? You? No, no. Do you make the fruit? No. The tree or the Holy Spirit living in you us. Here's another good author, Lloyd-Jones. This might help you. It helps me. Because this is confusing because we're not used to hearing stuff like this. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now, and he does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, and his finished work. And he rests on that alone, just put it all, gamble all in alone. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I have committed terrible sins, but I've done this and I've done that. He stops saying that. If he goes on saying that, he's not got faith. He doesn't get the gospel. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner, and it makes a man say, yes, I've sinned grievously. I've lived a life of sin, yet I know that I'm a child of God because I'm not resting on my righteousness of my own, but on the righteousness of Jesus. And God has put that to my account. Isn't that good? We don't say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm trying. I'm doing better. I, I, I'm, I'm getting all right on there. We say, no, I, I don't even care who I'm going to become because I am going to get better. That's true. My wife's making me better. Jesus is making me better. The Holy Spirit's making me better. My children are sanctifying me every day. Sometimes they're not sanctifying me, but most of the time I'm becoming sanctified by that process. I will be a better man, right? I'll be better when I'm older. But the man of true faith pushes it all over and says, it, it doesn't matter. I want, to, I want credited that. I want accounted that. You push it all on Jesus. Amen? Okay, now I want you to see what Paul's about to do, because he's not done. Paul is an excellent debater. I mean, better than C.S. Lewis. I, I, he's just going to kick, you know, some tail right here, right now. You want to see it? All of a sudden, he goes Abrahamic on us. He says, what about Abraham? And most scholars will say, and that is a stroke of genius. Who would have thunk it? 
We're talking about works. We're talking about law. And then Paul's saying, you've got to bet it all on Jesus. And then randomly, he just says, so what about Abraham? What do you mean, what about Abraham? What, well, you want to talk about Jewishness? You want to talk about the Jewish law? You want to talk about being a Jew? Let's go all the way back to the first Jew. Let's talk about Abraham. What about Abraham? How did Abraham get saved? How did Abraham become a friend of God? Did he do it by the works of the law? Or did he do it by faith? That's what he says. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He had faith in God, and it was accredited to him. It was given to him as righteousness, being made right, justification. So did Abraham get saved by the works of the law? Nope. Did Abraham get saved by faith? Yep. And if you think about it, it's actually a trick question, isn't it? Because Abraham was before the law. There, there, there was no law at, the, at Abraham's life. I mean, Moses was the one who gave us the law, right? He went up on the mountain and brought down the Ten Commandments twice, just in case you forgot the first time, right? He brought down the Ten Commandments. Abraham was way before Moses. The story of Abraham starts in Genesis chapter 12. So here is the genealogy of Genesis. It goes Adam and Eve, then it goes Noah and the flood, and then once they get to the new land and start multiplying, then God causes the Tower of Babel and spreads them out to different nations. God's wandering around on the earth, and he seemingly randomly walks up to Abraham and says, I want to bless you, and I want to bless all those nations through you. All you have to do is believe me. You want in? And Abraham says, yeah, I do. That's how Abraham got saved. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was not doing the law. The law doesn't come for another 500 years. It's good stuff. He goes on. Know then that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. You want to be a Jew? Hey, you want people to thank Jesus for their, his death, but then become a Jew, get circumcised, and stop eating bacon? Let me just tell you this. A true Jew is a Jew by faith, not by stop eating pulled pork sandwiches. That doesn't make you a Jew. A true Jew is like Abraham, he has faith. He goes on. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see this? It's fascinating. He says, when, when Abraham was alive, God preached the gospel to him. I mean, that's got to blow your mind because there was no gospel quite yet. Jesus hasn't died. There was no good news that Jesus died for you. The gospel means good news. So it's news about an event that happened in the past. And so God came to Abraham and preached good news about an event that's going to happen in the future. That's just weird. It's like prophetic news. He preached the gospel to Abraham. He says, through you, I'm going to bless the nations because through you, I'm going to bless the nations. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe. And Paul is now saying, anyone who believes that, like Abraham, with faith, becomes a true child of Abraham. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So you see the contrast? With Abraham, we get a blessing. With the law, we get a curse. For it is written, cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul, again, is showing us scripture that you have to go all in on Jesus. You have to go all in on Jesus because if you're going to put 50% or 40% or 30% on the law, you've got a problem immediately because unless you can obey every stinking dot of every I in the law, you're cursed. You're cursed. 
You've got to go all into the law if you want to obey the law. Because the law is a curse and you're under that curse. And if you can't do everything in the law, then eventually that curse is going to crush you. The law will crush you. The law will crush you. And so to the guy who says, well, you know, I, I'm not that bad. You know, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't kill kittens. <laughs> I listen to Christian music. <laughs> to that guy, we say, what about lying? Do you, do you ever lie? Well, you know, sometimes. But they're, but they're, but they're just little. No, 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 stop. Don't, don't say that. Because there's no such thing as little. If you lie at all, then that means you're AKA a liar. <laughs> and if you're a liar, then you didn't do that one. The law is going to crush you. That's what, that's what functional atheism is. Can I just tell you this? It is rampant in this country. Rampant. People think. Well, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't cheat, I don't cheat on my taxes, or not on purpose, at least. <laughs> I try to love my neighbor. When I talk to people, especially non-church you know, people, if, I, if I'm you know, at Starbucks and I get to talk to people, if I can get that conversation to go to Christianity, it's pretty easy for me because all they got to do is ask me what I do for a living. And it's like, all right, there we go. <laughs> you know, let's bring it. <laughs> I'm a pastor. If they don't run away too quickly, I'm like, so, what do you think about all that? And if I can get them to talk about Christianity, I always like to ask one question, and that is, what do you, how do you think a person is saved? How do you think someone is saved? And the way they answer that question is a diagnostic of what they really believe. You can't just ask people, do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christian? Because they'll say yes. They will. You can't just ask people, do you go to church? Trust me, I know. Charles and I knock on doors. Hi, you know, we're Charles and Mike. We're at a new church. You guys go to church? Oh, yeah, we go to church. What's it? I can't remember the name of it, but it's a good church. <laughs> well, when was the last time you were there? Well, you know, it was probably three, maybe six months ago, actually. You know, soccer, it's been just crazy, and so we haven't had a chance to go. But yeah, we like our church a lot. He's a good preacher. I went to Chesterfield Mall once with a guy who's teaching me how to do evangelism, and we asked 12 people that question. 12 people. What do you think you need to do to enter into eternal life? What do you think you need to do to be saved? Can I just tell you that every single person answered that question the same exact way, and it was the creepiest thing that ever happened to me? It really was. Every single person said this. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, I think. I don't, don't kill people, and I work hard for a living, and um, you know, I, I, I try to love people. You know, I try to live my life by just a simple maxim, really, just you know, do unto others you know, what you want them to do to you. That's what the Bible says, right? Just do that. And I think I'm pretty good. Can you believe that? Twelve people in a row said that. That's called functional atheism. It doesn't matter if they believe in God. It doesn't matter if they believe in Jesus. I'm not saying they're not saved, but I'm saying they don't know what the Bible says. They think the Bible says, because 82% of them believe that it says God helps those who help themselves. And so because I'm doing a little bit here and because I'm doing a little bit there and I'm not doing those really bad things, you know, those seven carnal things, which Jesus already tells us that we are doing those seven deadly sins, because I'm not doing that, I think I'll get in. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the good news. They're putting their chips on law and works and self, and that's not the gospel. It's not even good news. It's bad news. 
Someone needs to tell them the good news. Someone needs to say, that's the wrong answer. (laughs) The right answer is, I don't deserve to go to heaven. (laughs) And I'm betting it all on Jesus. Because if there's anyone who can get me in, it's him. And if he can't, well, I can't anyway. So I might as well go all in on Jesus. Amen? Well, that's why Paul says, you're either cursed or you're blessed. You're either cursed or you're blessed. Don't be a fool and don't be under a curse. Okay? So let's just conclude because that's bad news. You don't have to believe in the bad news. You are cursed. You are under the law. You are going to get, the law is going to get you one way or another. But the good news is this. Listen, he finishes with the good news here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Someone say amen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He died on the tree, which the Bible says, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. And so Jesus becomes a curse. He takes all the sins of the world upon him, including yours that you did yesterday and yours that you'll do tomorrow. And he puts it on himself, becomes a curse for us so that we might have a blessing. Isn't that good news? It is good news. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through works, through the flesh, through faith, through faith. So it's appropriate, I think, for us to end on the cross, don't you? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. That's good news, isn't it? So bank it all, bet it all on Jesus. Here's John Stott, famous scholar, says this. Every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your debt that I am paying and your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Amen? It puts us in our place. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we visited a place called Calvary, and it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So whatever you do, don't be a fool. Don't think that you can put anything on your side. It is all on his side. And if you need to, go to the cross. Return to the cross. Let it cut you down to size. Let it remind you you can do nothing. And then bet it all on that. Bet it all on the bread. Bet it all on the wine. Bet it all on Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.